Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses of the book of 1 Peter this morning. And so the the background to the book of the letter that Peter is writing in 1 Peter is is one of suffering, a suffering church. And we're going to look at the audience when we read this, because he, he tells us who he's writing to. We're going to look at exactly what's going on with the, the people there. But I want you to know that the book of First Peter is primarily an encouragement in suffering. Now, I also want to let you know that if you read First Peter from that perspective, you will learn a lot. There's a lot to be said, but this morning's message is not primarily about suffering. As a matter of fact, as we study these first nine verses, you're going to hear about the suffering people, but I want to focus instead on the overcoming of that suffering, and that will be the focus this morning. There's a lot that we have to to worry about in 2020. Uh, Personally or, or culturally or worldwide, there has been a lot that has gone on in a lot of people's lives. And so we, we started off 2020 with, with a pandemic. Uh, we had natural disasters. It continued on with, with uh, racial tension. Then there were these murder hornet things that we still haven't dealt with, by the way. I don't know what's happened to them, but as far as I know, they're still floating around somewhere. They've just been pushed to the side. Now, we've had openings of businesses, closings of businesses. On a more personal level, there have been many people who have, have been ill with the coronavirus. And some of you know individuals who have passed away from the coronavirus virus. Even now, we pray for one of our, our church members, Darlene McQuaid, who, who is uh, in the hospital uh, fighting uh, coronavirus. And so we, we've, we've dealt with personal issues. Um, as a church, we've, we've had the, the stress of not only dealing with people who are sick, but uh, non-COVID-related, losing uh, a very dear church member of ours in Chris Blair, and, and having to, to um, to somehow cope with the fact that she's no longer with us, rejoicing that she's in heaven, but, but mourning that she's gone. On a very personal level as a family, we've had ups and downs as well. You can say the same thing. We had a couple of weeks ago where a deer decided to hit our van. Now, that's how it worked, I think, is how it happened, the way it was explained to me. Uh, the deer came out and hit our van, and so we're, we're without a, a vehicle for a couple of weeks. And then uh, there's the, hey, here's one that looks good, and then it's sold, and going to look at another one and trying to get the right price. And, and there's been a lot of drama going on with that. We've lost two fish this year. I know it's sad. You can mourn if you'd like. We've lost two fish, one of which I think we can't find in the tank because we've not seen it in a while. So it's still in there somewhere, um, floating around. But uh, you found it? Okay, so we need to get that out of there. Um, There's been ups and downs for everybody. This has not been a pleasant year overall. If you're ranking the years of your life, I don't know very many people who are ranking 2020 at the very top. There's been some great things. I know there's been a new wedding, new marriage. Yeah, so there's a couple up in the balcony that I know is saying 2020 is amazing. The Philippines, right? Uh, But most people are looking at the year 2020, and it may not rank at the very bottom, but it's not at the very top for most people. There's been struggles. There's been some real pressing difficulties that we've had to deal with. And you throw on top of all that political drama. Now, I don't care about the political drama. What I I do care about, what is important is in the midst of a political year, things are heightened and priorities are shown among everybody. And what we found is a culture that is, by and large, not promoting Christian values. To, To the tune that 
I dare say we're entering a season, and have been for a while, but it's intensifying, of persecution of believers in the church. Now, I want to be very clear. Those of you who read and study what's going on around the world, we are not in America being persecuted like the church was persecuted in 1 Peter or like the church is being persecuted in some countries around the world now. None of us are in danger of being arrested because we are believing in the faith of Jesus Christ. None of us are being beaten. None of us are being uh, martyred. We are thankfully in a country that is tolerant enough that we have those freedoms. But those freedoms are being squeezed. And I think it's appropriate that we at least look at those freedoms and understand that the, the comfort we had as a believer even 50 years ago or 100 years ago and certainly 240 years ago when our nation was founded, those comforts are not the same. And so while I'm not going to say we are being persecuted like some Christians are being persecuted around the world, I, I think it's fair to acknowledge the suffering that we do endure. So I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9, through 9, and this message hopefully is preparing us to live in a world that doesn't always accept the Christian faith. You can read in your copy of Scripture or follow along on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1-9. through 9. It begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, we're going to come back to that phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. By the way, it's a heck of a way to start a letter. Next time you're writing a letter, you need to write your name and then get some fancy words like Paul does, we're gonna, or Peter does. We're, we're going to uh, look at at least one of those phrases here in a moment. This is his introduction. This is who I am and who I'm writing to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." A lot to unpack in that, that short nine-verse passage. A lot of big thoughts. And so this morning, I want to kind of look at what this letter is being written to. And early on, Peter says this is a letter written to the elect exiles. Now, I want to unpack this phrase before we dig into the rest of the word this morning. What does Peter mean when he says he's writing to the elect Exiles, And more importantly, does that mean he's still writing to you? So in general, Peter is writing to Jewish Christians, people who were, were Jewish by faith but have come to Christ and come to an a understanding of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And the reason why we know that is the the language he uses all throughout the letter, but particularly here when he calls them uh, dispersed. They're exiles and they've been spread out. And there's this pull to, there was once a time that the nation of Israel was united and together and now you are spread everywhere. Now, there would have been Gentile Christians reading this letter as well, but there's a lot of Jewish themes in 1 Peter, and he's writing specifically to those uh, Jewish individuals who are now scattered all across the known world. And so as he's writing to them, he gives specific locations. Uh, he talks about Cappadocia, Bithynia. He talks about Galatia. There's one other in there. He's, he's saying, I know you're scattered all around, but I'm writing specifically to you. They're elect and they're exiles. And those two words, I think, are a great way to describe you as a Christian today. Peter is writing to you as an elect exile. What does he mean by that? Well, for starters, I just want to simplify that word elect. We could do a whole study on what that word could possibly mean, but can I tell you this morning, without a shadow of a doubt, it means believers. It means those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have a confidence and salvation in Christ. They are all throughout Scripture called the elect. So if you identify as a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you can insert yourself as an elect individual. God has saved you, and he calls you his elect. What does it mean about exiles? Now, I thought about this word exiles, and this really would have been a good sermon to do, say, back in April or, or May, when we were all scattered in our homes and weren't gathered together. We were exiled from the church building. Um, and, and that would have been appropriate, right? Scattered, but, but I don't think he's specifically only talking about their physical location. Now, he does mention the, the four cities that they may be in. What he's saying is, is you are no longer at home. Right? That's what an exile is. Someone who is no longer in their comfort place and in their home. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel became very wicked and corrupt. And as a punishment, God sent uh, two different empires to not only attack them, but to pull them away from their home and take them into what the Bible calls exile. You're no longer living in Israel and in Jerusalem. You're now in what is Persia and before that Babylonia and before that Assyria. You are not home. You're in a different place country altogether. And this is what Peter is writing to those of you who aren't quite at home. I tell you, I think those two words, elect and exile, have to go together. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, physically present on this earth, are not home any longer. This world is not where we belong. This is not where we take root for all of eternity. No, God has a kingdom he is building and restoring that one day we will for all of eternity live. And that's why he says this world is not your home. If you are a believer, you are exiled. By the way, if you're exiled, you should feel uncomfortable in the the surrounding areas. If you're not home, it shouldn't be comfortable. It shouldn't be easy. You should expect a degree of suffering. You should expect persecution. You should expect hardship. So this morning, the the book of 1 Peter is written to you as a believer in Jesus Christ who is not at home, who is hopeful for a better day and a better time. Because you're in exile, there are, are all sorts of trials and tribulations you will face. And Jesus says as much through the Gospels, in this world, you will have trouble. 
He promises them, the disciples, as they're following along, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. You're not at home. You're in exile. You should not assume comfort and ease. You should assume hardship and division. You should assume that, that everything hurled against Jesus can and will be hurled against you. For too long in our nation, we've had a, a comfortable position as a Christian. It was culturally appropriate and acceptable to go to church, to, to sing praise to God, to, to insert God in our everyday conversations. And can I tell you, while that was an amazing, blessed time in our nation, that is not the norm. That was an oddity in the history of Christianity. This, what we experience in 2020 and even the past few years and going forward even further, this is what normal Christianity looks more like. Unacceptance, division. It looks a little bit more like awkwardness. Like we're a fish swimming the wrong direction upstream. Like, like we're, we're going down the one-way road the wrong way. The whole world is pushing back against us and the Christian faith says, I cannot go that direction. I'm in exile and I need to be working my way home. So how do we live as an elect exile in this world? How do we endure all that is before us? And I think the focus is not on the suffering, but I think the focus is primarily on the nature of our salvation. How do we cope with being in exile a believer in Christ who is not at home, it's to understand, and Peter makes it very clear in these verses, the nature of our salvation. So we're going to begin just by looking at that. What is the nature of our salvation? I want to compare it side by side here in a, a little bit with our sufferings, but Peter wants to, to lay the groundwork for where we are going to start. And he begins by saying the nature of our salvation is that it is caused by God. Your salvation began with God. He is the one who called you. He is the one who elects you. He is the one who holds you. And he is the one who ultimately saves you. We see language like this all throughout these first few verses. Beginning in verse 2 with his introduction just as he's talking about the people and what they're going through, he tells us in verse 2, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the one who knows all this before anybody else knows anything else. God has seen it all because he knows it all. Then in verse 3, listen to the, the language he uses in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Now, I know many of you all walked in here this morning thinking that, that God called you and saved you because you were such a good person that he wanted to spend eternity with you, right? Some of you all walked in here this morning believing wholeheartedly that because of your goodness, God said, that one's worth saving. I know that many of you came and sat down and thought, I'm so thankful that I'm such a good individual that God would choose to save me. I tell you, Peter takes that attitude and just knocks it into next week. You are not the reason you are saved. You are not the one who is in control of your own salvation. God is in control. He's the one who caused us to be born again. Let me ask, was it your idea to send Jesus Christ to this earth? 
Was it you who said, you know, it would be great if God the Son could physically show himself just so he could die? Was that your idea? I can't remember. Was that you who said, God, I think the best plan of action is for you to lift me up and for you to be humiliated? It was God who initiated all of that. He's the one who is in control and causes your salvation. He is the one who made you born again. He is the one with all the strength and all the power. Secondly, the nature of our salvation is that it's imperishable. If God's the one who's at work in it and he doesn't do anything uh, just halfway, he has made your salvation eternal. There is nothing that can touch it. By the way, if I was responsible for my salvation, it would have fallen apart already. I've tried to do some, some woodworking things. I, I wish Kurt was still here. Man, he was really good at this stuff. I've got two-by-fours, and I slap them together. And so the very first thing I made was a, a table for Callie's fish that, that apparently has killed two of them. I, the very first thing I made was a table for, for Callie's fish, and, and I'm putting it together, and as I have it together, it is it looks good, except that as you put a level on it, this side's higher and this corner's lower. And anytime I try to set something flat on it, it either rolls off or it wiggles and it wobbles and it was driving me nuts. I knew that if I was going to put a fish tank on this thing and it was wiggling and wobbling, the whole thing would probably eventually collapse. Right? If, if I build it, I would not trust it. Now, that being said, I did a little sawing, I did a little moving, and so far the fish have survived. Well, that's not right either. They haven't survived. So far the tank has survived, right? But, but I understand my ability to build something is, mm, I wouldn't trust it quite yet. On the other hand, Kurt, who was here at the beginning of this year, they've moved to Maine. He was a master woodworker builder. If Kurt builds something, you can rest assured it's going to last. My favorite thing that he's made is, is right in front of me. I said, Kurt, we need a, a smaller pulpit, one we can move for special events. And not only did he build a nice, strong, sturdy, he, he put pizzazz on it, right? There's a light that shines out of it, right? When Kurt builds it, you can trust it. You know it's going to be good. You know it's going to last. This is the way with my salvation. When I was responsible for my salvation, the whole thing would crumble. But because it's caused by God, it's going to last forever. It's imperishable and it's perfect. That's what he says in verse 4. He's given us an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading, kept in heaven for you. The nature of your salvation is that it will last from the moment you receive Christ through all of eternity. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that even if we wanted to, we could not escape salvation once we genuinely come before him. Nothing, it says, can snatch you out of his hand. Once he has a hold of you, he keeps you secure forever. It is an unfading, undefiled, and imperishable salvation. And then our third, third truth about the nature of our salvation is that it's a protective salvation. God's hand is on you in Christ. God keeps you. He, he started your salvation. He's going to make it last forever, and he's the one who puts his hand to bring it to the end. That's why we read in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded, that's you, you're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What we find in, in salvation is that God starts it, He's the one that makes it last forever, and he keeps you 
where you need to be. It's His strength that gives you protection. By the way, in verse 6, that's why it says, In this you rejoice. Oh, he talks about suffering, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, and we're going to look at those here in just a moment, but, but before he can even delve into the, the suffering of being in exile, it's this truth that you are saved as a result of God's calling, that you are living in an imperishable salvation, that you have protection from God, in this you can rejoice. And quite honestly, we don't even need to look at the rest of the text to give praise to God for His goodness to us in salvation. God has done a work in you that no one can touch. Coronavirus can't touch it. Illness can't touch it. Loss can't touch it. Struggle can't touch it. Deer hitting your car can't touch it. And dead fish won't touch it. There is nothing that comes your way that can affect the salvation that God has given you. It is caused by Him, imperishable and protective. And so Peter then decides, uh, as I'm writing to these suffering people, let's compare the salvation you have with the suffering you're experiencing. In the rest of the verses, he puts them side by side. Some similar thoughts and some similar ideas. So he says, let's look then, knowing the nature of your salvation, at the nature of your suffering. Can we talk about it for just a minute? Can we talk about all the stuff you're going through? Christian faith does not set aside suffering as if we need to ignore it. Just praise God, everything's okay. It acknowledges there's pain and there's suffering, but it puts it in perspective. Let's look at the nature of suffering according to Peter. First of all, he says it's controlled by God. It's in God's hands. We like to think that we suffer because, well, because God has stepped away for a moment. God has decided, I think I'll let them handle this on their own. But we remember that God caused our salvation. He is in control of all things, and He is in control even of our suffering. Look with me in verse 8. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What Peter is saying is, you don't see God, but He is there. You don't feel God's presence, but He is there. You're not sure that God hasn't left you and you're worried that you're all alone, but God is there. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. And I'll say as a testimony, it's been a theme all throughout my life. That in the midst of whatever struggles we have, though we don't see Him, God is there. And so we understand that that as, as God is leading three Hebrew men in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, to stand up boldly for their faith, to say there is nothing at all that can keep me from from worshiping my God. They get themselves in such trouble that they're condemned to death to be burned alive. And as they're being led to the fire, their thought had to be, okay, God, I stood up for you. Where are you at? As they're thrown into the fire, we see that the king who has punished them says, not only are there three men, I see four men, and one of them looks like the son of the gods. That was Jesus Christ, present in the midst of their suffering with them. They didn't see him going into the fire, but he was there. That's why in the New Testament, when Jesus gives us the greatest uh, calling as he's leaving earth, as he gives us this great commission to go out, 
He's dealing with a bunch of disciples who've had a roller coaster life, three years following Jesus Christ and and having the ups and downs it is of of following this this radical teacher, only to have their valley moment where he's crucified and dead, and they all go back to their lives thinking their lives are over and he's gone and left them, only for three days later for Jesus to come back to life and they're on this mountaintop. Now we've got the kingdom. Forty days later, Jesus says, I've got to go, guys. I've got some work to do, and I'm leaving this earth behind. And here's your task. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Go and do that. And at the moment, those disciples must have thought, how can we do that when you're not here? And what does Jesus say? And I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is in control even of your suffering. He's not absent, he's present. He's always working and he's always moving. Let me encourage you. One of my favorite series that I've been able to preach through, for sure in 2020, but maybe in my time at First Baptist, has been our series through Esther that we did while we were quarantined. The presence of God in his absence. Let me encourage you to to look back at our YouTube or on Facebook and find those messages and see how in the midst of a book where we don't even hear God's name, he is moving and working behind the scenes. God is in control of your suffering. He's not surprised and he's not disappointed. He's not trying to put a plan of action together because of your struggles. He is in control. The nature of our suffering, secondly, is that it's temporary. Your salvation was imperishable. There was nothing that could stop your salvation in Christ. But your suffering... Peter says it's temporary. It's coming and it's going. It's fleeting. It's momentary. Elsewhere, he's going to say it's light. This is what he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You notice the contrast between the salvation and the suffering? The salvation is is incorruptible. It's imperishable. There's nothing that can stop it. And you're your suffering, your trials, your difficulties are here for a little while and only if necessary. Through God's grace, he gives you times of blessing. Through God's wisdom, he allows you times of suffering in his control. But they are coming and they're going, they're fleeing. The sufferings that you have, the struggles you have, the trials you have are are mere flashes in the pan, here today and gone tomorrow. And then finally, the nature of our suffering is that it produces perseverance. It has a purpose. Our salvation was protective, and our suffering is as well. It gets us ready for the next fight. That's why in verse 7, Peter writes this, so that you may, uh, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are the trials doing? They're testing the genuineness of your faith. If there's one thing that a worldwide pandemic has done is it has clarified our priorities. Where can we go and where can we not go? What I've witnessed is it's okay for many families to go to large gathering sporting events shoulder to shoulder with their kids sharing sports equipment and families uh, interacting with each other, and that is just fine. But church, church is a little scary for us. 
What I found is it's perfectly acceptable to go to a public place for recreation, whether it's a restaurant or whether it's shopping, to a mall. It's fine to do all of these things at any hour of the day, at any time, but it's not okay to come to church. What I've seen is the priorities of many people has been not just their health, but their own personal gratification and desires. What we found is we enjoy this, and so it's safe. But we're not connected, so we won't go. I think that our trials divide us in that way. It tests the genuineness of our faith. I am by no means saying that if you are health compromised or have a legitimate reason not to physically be around other people that you need to just somehow magically test your faith and show up and rub shoulders. There's wisdom all throughout Scripture as well. What I do question is how we can go everywhere except church and call ourselves a genuinely strong-rooted Christian. So this morning, I wonder if our our message that Peter is sharing with us, our afflictions and our struggles is revealing about us how really strong we are to our Christian faith. Do we really and truly and genuinely do everything in our wisdom and our power to worship? Or do we allow Satan to have a foothold? Do we make excuses? This morning, I... I'll say there's at least two families that uh, aren't present here because of health reasons that contacted me over the weekend of just taking precautions. And can I tell you, please continue to do that. I I told both of those individuals, please, out of precaution, stay away. We we have an online service to watch. We've had others in the past, and, and I myself didn't come on a Sunday morning just out of precaution. That is not a division of faith. But we have many others who we've not seen since January. Maybe they're watching online. Maybe they're not. I wonder if we can examine our hearts and say, am I living in in fear? Or am I living in comfort? Or am I living in faith? This morning, our trials test us. Our, Our trials make us have to make decisions that ultimately cause us to persevere. The comparison in verse 7 is that, that the trials will test our faith, and our faith is more precious than anything else. It says your faith is more precious than gold and silver. Gold and silver perishes. You put it in the fire and it melts. It's gone. But your faith is eternal. Are you making your faith a priority? So this morning, as Peter writes to the elect exiles, to you and to me, the suffering you endure as you compare it to the salvation you have in Christ is temporary. It's still in God's hands And it's meant with a purpose to produce strong believers in Christ. Are you willing to say, God, your salvation is so much greater than anything I can experience here. Your goodness is so much better than all of my trials. My lowest of low valleys, God, you are in control. And one day you're bringing us to an eternal glory, imperishable and perfect. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for a message that that convicts us strongly. Lord, I ask that your word would show us that our our suffering, God, is not the focus, but our focus is on your salvation goodness. Father, we thank you that you called us, that you sent your son Christ down to this earth for our sins. Lord, we we thank you that you not only called us, but you you keep us for all of eternity, that, that 
Our salvation will never end. And Father, we, we praise you for protecting us and keeping your hand on us. Father, in the midst of our suffering, let that be our focus. Not our trials, not our tribulations, not our hardships. Let it be on your goodness and your salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.